Hello again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast by two reporters turned coffee farmers. Now that we're no longer in the newsroom, we help you deconstruct the news like a journalist and give you the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. And today, we're going next level with you guys. You remember back in episode one when we gave you four tips for reading the news? Well, today, we're introducing a fifth one, which is to look for the news they don't tell you. Yeah, now we know this sounds odd. I mean, if you're not a reporter, how do you find the news that's hidden? Well, if you've been using our first four tips, that's already pretty good training in understanding the news. And here's a recap if you don't remember them. Number one, don't look for absolute truth in news because it's just the first draft of history. Number two, consider all sources critically. Number three, follow the money. And number four, let go of binary thinking. So over the past 10 episodes, we've returned to these tips time and again to get you used to them. We wanted to prep you for a subject that's hard to figure out because the rhetoric is loud and the reporting can often be spotty. Yeah, I'm talking about American foreign policy. On the surface, it's easy to feel disconnected from U.S. foreign policy because it often hits the news like this. There's some sort of political upheaval in a faraway land, violence breaks out, and the next thing you know, pundits are pushing for military action, which means taxpayer dollars are being spent on lots of weapons and perhaps the deployment of American troops. And we, the American people, still don't have a sense of what's really happening on the ground. Or you might see the results of our foreign policy in other ways. So here's a good example. You guys remember in 2018 when the migrant caravans from Central America were all over cable and television news? So that was mainly reported as an immigration story. As in, could these folks claim asylum or not? But it's also an American foreign policy story. Because back in 2009, the United States accepted a coup that was staged by the Honduran military. And in 2017, Honduras held elections, and the forces that supported the coup ended up remaining in power. This was controversial because election monitors from the Organization of American States noted significant voting irregularities. OAS was so concerned that it even called for new elections. So you have this political destabilization that was supported by United States foreign policy. And then you add to that years of extreme weather, such as droughts and flooding that killed crops at a crisis level in 2019. And then everybody knows that 2020 kicked off the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, right? So all of this collectively brings us to May 2021, when NPR reported that more than 200 Honduran families a day are trying to claim asylum at our southern border, which is more than any other country. Yeah, now... Joan, you and I talk a lot about foreign policy because it's more important than a lot of people think. Now, to me, foreign policy is domestic policy. Foreign crises can suck up so much of our federal budget and legislative time that there's not enough time left over for the big problems that we face at home. Not to mention that the values that we hold for people in other countries are a reflection of the values that we hold for many of our own citizens here in the U.S., I've always said that if the American people understood foreign policy better, we could change the way this country operates. So let's dive into how we can get better at understanding how the United States influences what goes on in other countries. And you guys, well, we're going to play for you. I mean, 
we could not have picked a better launching point for this discussion. Yeah, this worked very well. Yeah. So you guys remember the last episode when we talked about the Hills Internet show called Rising? As we told you last time, its longtime co-anchors, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, recently left to start their own independent newscast. And since then, Rising has had a cast of different guest hosts, such as Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. Now, Grimm is the Washington, D.C. bureau chief of The Intercept, and Jashinsky is culture editor of The Federalist. So The Hill is trying to set up a whole liberal versus conservative vibe here. And when Ralph heard this clip of the two of them, he pulled me into the office and said, you got to listen to this. And yes, folks, you got to listen to this. Here it goes. On the, the balance, um, you know, I, th I think the United States has done incredible good around the world, continues to do incredible good around the world in a way that could never and should never be compared with the Taliban or Hamas. I would agree in this sense that when it comes to the amount of pain and suffering that the U.S. has produced around the world, the Taliban, Hamas, and Israel are pikers <laughs> compared to what the U.S. has been able to accomplish just in, say, Argentina or just in Indonesia, or just in Vietnam, or just in Congo, uh, or just pick, you could throw a dart uh, anywhere at the at the global map, and you can probably find you know at some point throughout the 20th century the U.S. I intervening to undermine you know a, a, some some type of social democratic effort and backing the most vicious right uh, right wing elements. So, I mean, wow, right, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, there's so much to unpack here. So first, you know how we keep reminding you guys, and frankly, ourselves, to let go of binary thinking? This is a terrific example of why that's important. So much of the media discussion revolves around this binary of good guy versus bad guy. And when it comes to foreign policy, most of what we hear is from the standpoint of American exceptionalism, as in the United States is the good guy, full stop. And that's what makes this exchange between Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky so jarring. Both Ralph and I, we were like, damn, the Hill let Ryan Grimm say all of that on Rising, right? Yeah. <laughs> and because normally when you're dealing with corporate owned media, the type of history that Grimm brought up is off limits. And you may remember from our last episode that the former hosts of Rising talked about how their bosses tried to control their voices both on and off the show. So. In this argument between Grimm and Jashinsky, can you guys guess who's the loser? Because if you look at the comments to that video, people tend to think Ryan Grimm won because he dropped a lot of history and Emily Jashinsky lost because she responded with a lot of nervous laughter and platitudes. But I have a different interpretation. I think the loser is us, the viewers. Because in this good guy versus bad guy framework, the focus is on the people who are arguing. Now, granted, Grimm gave us a lot more info than Ralph and I are used to seeing in most media. But because of this style of debate, we get no nuanced discussion that allows us to make up our own minds about the history. And a lot of times, this style of debate is even worse on cable news, where the arguing can overcome the substance of the argument. So how do you cut through the noise and educate yourselves? This is what Ralph and I are going to focus on for the rest of this episode, namely methods to discover the news they don't tell you. So, all right, Ralph, let's take Ryan Grimm's examples. If our listeners want to determine for themselves how American foreign policy affected Argentina, Indonesia, Vietnam, and the Congo, what advice would you give them? 
Well, to take them in that order, you know, in Argentina, there are actually recent declassifications that show that the Secretary of State at the time, the infamous Henry Kissinger, had pre-knowledge of the military plans to overthrow Perón back in 1976. When you look at Indonesia, there was an Indonesian coup in 1965, and the CIA's involvement in that was disclosed as part of the Rockefeller Commission hearings back in 1975. These came as a precursor to the Church Committee hearings, which went from 1975 and 76. That's where you can find information about involvement in the overthrow of the Congo. Vietnam is very well known and studied in this country. There are a lot of different sources with that one. And these commissions looking into the intelligence operations of the U.S. were all in the wake of the Watergate affair when uh, President Nixon resigned instead of going into what most likely would have been him being impeached and convicted by the House and Senate, respectively. Now, we're not going to have time in this show to delve into each of these examples. The main point we're making here is that congressional hearings and government documents are a good place to start cutting through the noise. And it's not just the testimony or the records that are important. They also give you a list of players to watch. Over and over again, there are key people who keep popping up as architects of military and economic actions on foreign soil. You begin to notice certain patterns, and you can predict the upcoming hotspots. So we're going to walk you through one example now, and you can see how this works in practice. Take it away, Ralph. Yeah, now the person we're going to follow in this example, his name is Elliot Abrams, and here's a bit of Elliot Abrams' history in government. He entered... Um, federal government service in the 1980s as a hawkish foreign policy appointee during the Reagan administration. He was an assistant secretary of state. And he was mostly involved in Central America at that time. He was involved in Guatemala. He was involved in El Salvador, where he knew about and dismissed some witness accounts of the El Mozote massacre. And he was involved in Nicaragua. And that is where he had the most public trouble. He eventually pled guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress or lying to Congress about the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, he was pardoned by George H.W. Bush in 1992 as H.W. was leaving office. Abrams' next stint in government was under George W. Bush. He was appointed to his National Security Council, and he specialized in work on Venezuela and Iran. Abrams was reported to have pre-knowledge of the briefly successful coup against former Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez, which happened back in 2002. Now, after W. Bush left office, Abrams went back into the think tank world. Abrams has been a longtime member of the Council of Foreign Relations, and he was a member of the Project for a New American Century, which is something we're going to explain in a future episode. He also began writing for the Weekly Standard, which is a neoconservative magazine that was co-founded by Bill Kristol. You guys, this history is why we pay attention to Elliot Abrams' whereabouts. Because when he shows up somewhere, it's a sign that something's going to happen. So we knew to pay close attention to Venezuela in 2019 when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo appointed Abrams as a U.S. Special Representative there. Ralph, why don't you give us some background and tell us why the political situation was heating up in Venezuela at the time? Okay, so the president at that time was Nicolas Maduro. Of course, he is still the president today. Maduro served in Hugo Chavez's administration 
and became president of Venezuela after Chavez died back in 2013. Now, under Maduro, Venezuela has seen severe economic problems and political instability. There have been shortages of food and medicine and rising inflation, and all of this led to protests in the streets. Now, there was a constitutional crisis in Venezuela in 2017. The Supreme Court ended up taking over the legislative powers of the National Assembly, which essentially put all three branches of government under Maduro's control. The United States imposed sanctions on Venezuela in 2017 for what the State Department called human rights abuses and anti-democratic actions by the Maduro administration. Now, looking back from that, that time, economists will debate and probably will continue debating whether those sanctions caused the bulk of the people suffering or if it was the economic conditions leading up to the sanctions that caused the suffering. The point is, the United States sanctions definitely have been a factor in Venezuela's economic distress. So altogether, we have a country that's in crisis leading up to the 2018 presidential elections, which got moved around a couple times. It ultimately happened in May of 2018. And Maduro won re-election. However, less than 50% of Venezuelans actually voted in that election. Russia, Cuba, Turkey, and China were among the countries that accepted Maduro's victory as legitimate, while Western powers and U.S.-friendly Latin American countries did not. The Organization of American States rejected the election results. The United Nations, they ultimately approved them. Now, the main political opposition at this time came from a previously little-known politician named Juan Guaido. And Guaido hailed from a small state called Vargas, which is on the Venezuelan coastline. And Guaido is not a major power broker in the National Assembly. He's part of a political party called Popular Will, which had been known for being small but active and had been associated with protests that became violent back in 2014. In his nine years in the Assembly to that point, Guaido had mostly been a political alternate. But the National Assembly, which was mainly composed of political opponents of Maduro, named Guaido their leader after the 2018 elections. Now, this was not due to Guaido's popularity in the chamber. It was because his party was taking their appointed turn at leadership, and the two more senior members of his party were unable to take office. All right, guys. So let's recap for a second here. As the New York Times said in January 2019, Guaido went from, quote-unquote, virtually unheard of, to a household name after he was elected leader of Venezuela's National Assembly. Then in January 2019, Guaido gathers tens of thousands of supporters and swears himself in as Venezuela's president. And he's also being touted by the United States and other Western powers as Venezuela's rightful leader. Now, this is a head-spinning ascent for Guaido, right? And it's aided by the fact that Venezuela's most popular opposition leaders were, as Reuters noted in February 2018, either jailed, in exile, or disqualified from holding office at the time. Yeah, and backing for Guaido from the European Union and Canada soon followed. Around that same time, his wife had put out a public address calling on the Venezuelan military to rise up against Maduro. And meanwhile, all this time, the deteriorating economic conditions continued, made worse by the U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. And then White House National Security Advisor John Bolton came out and gave another reason why the Trump administration was angling to get rid of Maduro. 
Here's what he said in an interview on Fox Business Channel in late January of 2019. Venezuela is one of the three countries I call the Troika of tyranny. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and, and produce the oil uh, capabilities in uh, Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of the United States. We both have a lot at stake here making this come out the right way. And just a little info to add for context, the Venezuelan oil industry has been nationalized since 1976, but relations between their industry and international oil companies have been more strained ever since Chavez took office back in the early 2000s. And the oil companies were still seeking more access to Venezuelan oil now that Maduro was in office. So guys, it's in the midst of all of this that Elliot Abrams shows up in Venezuela. Exactly. So on February 7th of 2019, Elliot Abrams has a press conference at the U.S. State Department, and he talked there about heeding Guaido's call to send international aid to Venezuela. So pressure began building to take in this large aid package that Guaido was being given credit for putting together soon after proclaiming himself the president. So we're going to put the link to the State Department press briefing into the show notes because it's notable. There's someone there who knows Elliot Abrams's career and is very critical of it. He keeps trying to yell out questions and accusations in the background, and the officials cover his voice up by calling on different reporters to ask Abrams their questions. So if you can't understand what this guy is yelling, you can read the transcript. Anyway, that's, that's just an aside. Back to you, Ralph. And the whole issue comes to a head on February 24th of 2019. There was a convoy set to go into Venezuela from Colombia with what Guaido's supporters said was aid for the people, food, supplies, medicine, etc. And they wanted to use a highway and a bridge that connected Colombia and Venezuela called the Tienditas Bridge. It's one of several crossings over the Tachira River, which is also the natural border between the two countries in that region. Now, Maduro disagreed. He said that the caravan would be used to allow materials into his country that was meant to instigate a coup against his government, and he vowed to have his military block that caravan's entry to Venezuela. Now, it's also worth noting that this access route that Guaido's supporters wanted to use had, in fact, never been open to the public since its construction back in 2016 due to ongoing tensions between Colombia and Venezuela. So CNN and the BBC both reported that the trucks were set ablaze on the Tienditas Bridge. And we're going to link to the CNN story, which insinuated that the Venezuelan military had set the fires. But there was a news outlet that came out with very different reporting. Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone, which is an independent website that focuses on foreign affairs, was at the Tienditas Bridge when the trucks caught fire. And he reported, the same day as CNN's report came out, that this claim of Maduro's troops setting fire to those trucks was highly dubious. Blumenthal's report included TV footage that showed an anti-Maduro protester throwing a Molotov cocktail that appeared to set one of these trucks on fire. And that footage was aired on Noticias Uno, which is a nightly Colombian newscast. So you guys, the detail that Ralph just told you is important. Because for a couple of weeks afterwards, the news narrative that Maduro's military burned the aid just took off. It wasn't until March 10th that the New York Times released a video and story that upheld Blumenthal's observations, 
without mentioning that it was the gray zone who broke the news. And in its video, the New York Times says, quote, we obtained previously unseen TV footage, end quote, but goes on to show the same protesters seen on Noticias Uno, you know, the one throwing the Molotov cocktail that appeared to set one of these trucks on fire. So why did it take the New York Times until March 10th to publish this story? Why are they calling it previously unseen TV footage when it already had been aired on Columbia News and included in the Gray Zone's February 24th report? You see, this is what Ralph and I mean when we talk about the news that they don't tell you. And it's a real shame that the Times took that long, because in its same video, the Times summarized the consequences of a false news narrative run wild. You had U.S. officials seizing upon an unsubstantiated Venezuelan news report that held Maduro responsible for burning the aid. The Times video showed tweets from U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, National Security Advisor John Bolton, USAID Administrator Mark Green, and Mike Pompeo all blasting Maduro for burning aid, you know, while his people starved. U.S. mainstream media repeated the claim. The U.N. Security Council embraced it. And the United States hit Venezuela with even more sanctions. So we're linking this video in the show notes because you guys should really watch it. It is, as the New York Times says, a classic example of how misinformation spreads. And, you know, guys, this is a perfect example of why we included news tip number two on our list. And that's, you know, to consider all sources critically. If you're choosing what to read and watch for media bias charts, like the ones put out by AdFontes and AllSides.com, you might have missed the Gray Zone's reporting. The Gray Zone is not part of AdFontes' group of most trusted news outlets because it has a lot of opinion mixed in with reporting. And the Gray Zone doesn't appear on AllSides.com at all. But when you are trying to figure out the news they don't tell you, you've got to read widely and evaluate for yourself what makes sense and what doesn't. That goes for every news source from the New York Times to the Gray Zone. And it's why we study other sources for American foreign policy. As we told you before, congressional hearings, government documents. You know, we've got the general historical record, foreign news outlets, because reading American mainstream news just is not enough. Yeah, and you know, there's one last question still hanging in the air here. Was the attempt to deliver aid part of a coup attempt against Maduro? Now, at the time, the U.S. was very clear that Maduro's presidency should end. But they also described the February 2019 mission as one of delivering humanitarian aid. You can see that from the State Department briefing with Elliot Abrams that we talked about earlier. Well, earlier this year, in 2021, the U.S. government itself offered more insight. Remember how we told you to follow government documents? In April, the Inspector General for USAID put out a report that was dubious about the aid sent in 2019 and said that it seemed time to assist the U.S. stated goal of regime change in Venezuela. Now, the story was picked up in the Associated Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Democracy Now! as a one-day story, pretty much. There was no other notice of the announcement, and apparently nothing in cable news. See, reports like these quickly become the news they don't tell you. And that's why we're making it our fifth news tip. And one more note I want to make for everybody listening out there. We always include show notes and links along with each episode, and we want you to reference them. It's especially important for this episode that we're doing on Venezuela because you're going to be able to see this yourself with the reporting that was already done. And that's our show for today. 
Now, next up is another episode about American foreign policy, because we've got additional ways to discover the news they don't tell you. In the meantime, if you have a question about this episode or any of our past ones, let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, and C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. You can find us on Twitter at Catch Me Up to Speed. That's the number two speed. And we also are on Instagram. Hit us up, ask us a question, we'd be happy to hear from you. And as always, thanks for spending time with us today, guys. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>